Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dino. Before we get to our show today, I need to thank the 12 or so who uh, pledged and donated last week right here on the show. And also the 11 who donated to the Facebook fundraiser for the same purpose. Uh, together we made it to a very nice amount. Thank you, everybody. so much really appreciate it it was kind of difficult last week uh, but that's because I was given a uh, ridiculous uh, goal so I'm glad that we have raised plenty and we're doing good we are uh, going to be talking today about what's um, called the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center Uh, you probably have heard about it as Cop City. And uh, with us to discuss it is George Chidi. He's a columnist for Decaturish.com, a former staff writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and former city councilman for the city of Pine Lake. He also contributes commentary to Fox 5 um, Atlanta. Thank you, uh, George, for joining us today. Can you explain? Explain, first of all, what is that uh, Atlanta Public Safety Training Center? What's the purpose of it? What's its history? So it's interesting. Um, by the way, thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. So the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, and activists here have been calling it Cop City because it's shorter. Uh, it's I a think it also means something. I think it's a <laughs> and I'm going to call it cop city yeah. mostly because it irritates the city but also because it's just shorter um the uh city has proposed an 85 acre uh training facility for the police and firefighters um and on the surface it's fairly anodyne it's basic um it's not basic I mean it's going to be the largest training center of its sort in the southeast United States but um I mean on its face, would not necessarily be controversial um there'd be a, a track for training drivers a burn building for firefighters classroom space a firing range uh stables for horses uh there is however also a uh, a mock city which is four relatively small buildings that police would use for um breaching training SWAT stuff um and that raised an eyebrow uh So did the fact that they're building it on um, land that has been described as environmentally sensitive. Uh, people are very sensitive about tree cover in Atlanta, let me just tell you. Uh, but there was also a, a question about whether or not runoff from the development would exacerbate flooding in a historically black community near where they want to build it. The entire process of permitting and zoning and planning this has been... Less than transparent, let's just say. Uh, they, the city has gone out of its way to make it hard for opponents to get in the way. Um, and that came to a head a couple of days ago when a funding vote came up. 300 people testified against it. And basically, there were like three people who said that they should vote for this. And the city council... still voted to fund it 11 to 4. yeah we've seen things like that in uh, Madison too but uh, let's let's then start talking with uh, the where 
it is um, sited in, it's, it's uh, right outside of Atlanta, but it's actually a forest. I actually remember seeing a, uh, an episode of Atlanta, the, the series by um, Donald Glover, where mm-hmm. Paperboy gets lost in, in that forest. And, and that is where they want to cite it, correct? It is. Um, and there are sort of two, there are two ways to look at this. Like on the one hand, it's like the largest forested um, city owned land that they've got. Um, there are 300 acres of forest there. Um, the, uh, and as I said, from an environmentally sensitive perspective, like people who are watching lots of development happen in Metro Atlanta, look at clear cutting a forest in order to build uh, a police training facility is a misuse of public property, particularly since for the last 20 some odd years, the city had been promising to use that land as a formal public park. And they reversed themselves um, in order to build this. So on the other hand, and like just taking the city's perspective on this for a moment, the forest in question is only about 1% of the tree cover of the, of the neighboring county. And there are developments that happen which are multiple times, like they're going to they're gonna cut 16,000 acres of forest down in a county outside of Atlanta in order to build subdivisions. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't raise the, the kind of protest that an 85-acre, you know, Trading facility the size of a Walmart shopping center um, is is raising here, and I think part of that is ideological, and I think part of that, frankly, um, is uh, because of where it is. This forest is in the middle of a of a historically black community that has been uh, underinvested in, and we have a, a very serious environmental issue within DeKalb County with runoff. Uh, houses are getting flooded, and the folks who live in those houses tend to be very poor. Or not very poor, but poor. And um, the county and the city look like they've been giving short shrift to those environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was, I, I'm also wondering about that uh, black community. You say that it's been underinvested. Has it also been over-policed? Yeah, I would say so. I, but you could say that of essentially any, any African-American in the United States. Um, and it's, a, it's an extraordinarily interesting question to, to pose to uh, DeKalb County when we're talking about policing. Um, this county is majority black. Uh, its elected officials are majority black. And unlike a lot of large municipal police departments, its police department is also majority black. Um, there is a, a meaningful divide within the public, within the black public of Atlanta about how to approach policing things. Um, because there are a lot of black homeowners who are in Atlanta middle class, um, including some who are near the, the community, although that the community near the training center is, is much more likely to be working class or working poor than middle class. But um, middle-class black Atlantans are as likely to be looking for more policing as less policing. And I know that might be surprising for some of your listeners to hear. Um, it was surprising to me as I was reporting through this. Um, there's a, there's a very significant political question like within the public about specific to Atlanta about whether or not, uh, the lack of police responsiveness is itself an act of racism. Um, Hmm. Black homeowners call the cops and nobody shows up. Uh, White homeowners in the rich parts of Buckhead in Atlanta call the cops and there's uh, like 10 cop cars in 90 seconds. Um, For some black people that that smacks of racist intent. Um, The problem is modern policing tends to target people of color and particularly when you're talking about poor people of color 
the relationship with police officers here is not solid. Yeah, and we have seen, of course, um, black police uh, brutalizing a black motorist not that long ago. So um, somehow it seems like the issue of police rather than um, serving and protecting, um, but instead uh, seeing just us, the citizens, as enemies is more important than the, the question of color here, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of nuance. And I'm, let me back up for a second. I want your your listeners to sort of understand my perspective on this. Sure. Um, so I've been writing about criminal justice issues um, when I haven't been working on them directly for the last few years. And I've been trying very hard since uh, the incre- there was an increase in violence in Atlanta and across the country that started in... 2020. And I've been very carefully looking at the reasons why, rather than just reporting through this person got shot or that person got shot, but to talk about what's driving this crime so that the political response to it would not be a knee jerk, let's just hire a bunch of new cops and criminalize everything response to that. Um, So when I'm looking at the i've started to look at the cop city issue in that context uh cop city became a a thing that was approved of because of an unprecedented increase in violent crime in the city of atlanta that seems to have receded crime started falling off a cliff about one year ago almost to the day um and i don't think that the local politics of that has caught up um so there but there was a shift like there was a, a meaningful political shift both by in terms of how politicians were approaching this and how the public was approaching this in terms of what they were expecting out of their police department um there was a there was a, a long years long path toward criminal justice reform issues in Atlanta where we wanted to close a, a, a sprawling city jail that was basically empty and eliminate cash bail for indigent defendants and uh, reduce the criminality, particularly around marijuana. Um, The city of Atlanta decriminalized marijuana to the degree that it could. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this progression of very, like, interesting changes to criminal justice policy that stopped in 2021. And... I'm concerned that this is like the last stake in the ground and that whole movement is just dead. Mm-hmm. So, George, if I, if I may, I'm going to ask you a question that I've never asked before um, on the uh-huh. show, um, which is, um, do you mind, um, since our, our listeners cannot see you, um, do you identify as a black man? Is that a, <laughs> a fair question? May I ask that? That's the first time I've been asked that in a while. Um, yeah, I I've am never asked an African-American. My, all right, so my father is a Nigerian immigrant. Um, my mother is French-Canadian and Polish. Uh-huh. Um, I am biracial. I identify as both black and white. Um, I am identified as black everywhere I go, particularly when I'm in a really high-end store in Buckhead, if you get my drift. I get your drift, yeah. Um I mean, I'm white, but I have an accent, so I uh, also get these things um, happening to me, you know? The police not coming when I call or not taking my report. On the other hand, they do uh, uh, take note of me um, when I open my mouth. Anyway, let's get back to um, Cop City. So, I know what I sound like. I mean, it's funny. I'm sorry to to, to sort of jump in. Sure. But I know. I sound like Albert Brooks. I sound like the dad from Finding Nemo. Uh-huh. And now that you've heard that, you can't unhear that, and it's bad. But trust me, like I, I look more Samuel Jackson than Albert Brooks. Yeah, Just, <laughs> like, do what you can with that. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks for all these clarifications. So, so Cop City, uh, what is the cost, and who is paying it? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, on paper, it's a ninety million dollar project that initially had been 
proposed where the city of Atlanta would pay 30 million and private donors run through a foundation called the Atlanta Police Foundation would raise the other 60 with some part of that funded through the renting of this facility to other police departments. About a month ago, local journalists, and I wish I had been one of the ones who found this out because it would have been a feather in my cap, a group of local journalists tore into the financing and discovered that the city essentially was on the hook for 67 million of this 90 million, hmm. that the city was going to continue to pay a $1.2 million rental fee to this, this foundation, which would help that foundation cover alone it was taking out in order to do the construction um it's one of the reasons why like the world has been hitting the roof over this thing lately uh because the city is swearing on a stack of bibles no 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 it's always been 60 million out of our pocket and all of these people who've been misinterpreting the things we've very clearly been telling you for the last two years are just wrong and it's the most gaslighty horror show of public communication on a thing like this that i have seen in 30 years as a journalist like just a straight at the municipal level anyway like just a fabrication of the history of the communications on this mm -hmm. and what is the atlanta police foundation so the atlanta police foundation uh it's uh it's an organization that's um how do i put this it's easy to sort of characterize it as corporate Atlanta's approach to supporting police. And that's uh -huh. oversimplifies things because the folks who are sitting on the board of the Atlanta police foundation are for the most part, the leading lights of corporate Atlanta, uh, the uh, Cox communications, Chick-fil-A, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Bank of America, SunTrust, or now Truist. Like the, uh, Atlanta has a lot, has a long history of corporate involvement in civic affairs. Uh, the, the police foundation has sent like the police department of Atlanta has essentially outsourced a lot of its non enforcement elements to this foundation to help manage, which frankly, I find questionable. Um, the police foundation, for example, helps administrate the city's sprawling London style camera system. Atlanta is, uh, is the most surveilled city in the United States. Um, it has more cameras per capita than London does. Um, the police foundation helps finance housing for police officers to live in the city. It helps pay for take home police cars. It, runs the city's uh, anti-gang youth outreach centers called the At Promise Centers. Uh, it um, is helping running the analysis for repeat offender, for its repeat offender program, or targeting system to go and figure out who they should arrest. I, I mean, these are all things that I'm surprised to see a supposedly nonprofit civic organization involved in. And so this foundation proposed Cop City saying we'll build it you'll help pay for it we'll run it and that's kind of why we're in the boat that we're in right now okay so that's interesting so this they they proposed it it's it, it's not something that came from uh, the city or the mayor it, so it the came from the police about getting a new facility for a year and in the city's defense, there should be a new facility. Like the, right now, they don't have one. The city of Atlanta, the 20th largest police department in the United States, has to borrow other people's training facilities in order to get stuff done. Um, and not just for police, but the firefighters. Like they don't have an actual fire facility right now. They were using a, like an abandoned middle school or elementary school to do their fire training and that that building that they were using has just been condemned um like there's a consensus there's a general consensus that this is not sustainable because those costs to the city continue to increase year over year uh so the city had been looking for something and then the foundation said well hey you own this property over here and what about this 
Mm-hmm. Well, my guest is uh, George Chidi. He's a uh, journalist in uh, the Atlanta area, and we're talking about Cop City. And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation at uh, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Or you can join us on social media, at War Talk, on uh, Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. So, um, I mean, what you're describing is a very policed city already. Um, there have been uh, protests against Cop City On March 4th, um, environmental activist Manuel Tortuguita Terran was um, killed at the site of the future Cop City. From what I understand, he was in his tent um, when um, he was killed in a hail of uh, bullets by police. And then um, more previously, more recently, uh, on May 31st, the police and Georgia Bureau of Investigations uh, raided a house near uh, Cop City, which had been an activist staging ground for protests and uh, houses the bail fund for the police and arrested the three people who were there and has charged them, have charged them with absolutely insane charges. Explain all of that. Tell us what's going on with the um, response of the police. Sure. Let's start with the Tortuguita. Um, so Tortuguita was killed in January, actually. It was January 18th. Oh, was it? Um, it was. Uh, he, uh, they... Um, and please correct me if I'd make that mistake again. Tortuguita uh, identified as non-binary. Um, they were uh, one of a, a relatively small, like maybe two dozen uh, activists who had been staking out the area um, on and off. Uh, there had been some sporadic uh, vandalism uh, through the through the course of their, their uh demonstrations uh some vehicles had been torched there had been devices left in the road um police were starting to step up their enforcement because uh they say these acts of vandalism had become more violent uh and there had been a series of threats made on uh elected officials and other officials associated with this so Let me say this. There's a distinction to be made between the Atlanta Police Department's enforcement of all of this and the state police's enforcement of all of this. As I was saying, Atlanta, majority black, everybody is in charge is black. But we live in Georgia with famously a very Republican governor and a Republican uh, attorney general And a Republican and a Republican head of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the state patrol was enforcing at the site and it was six state patrol officers apparently who opened fire after one of them was shot while they were trying to enforce things there um, a, like a state patrol officer was shot And according to those police reports, they returned fire. Um, they found a gun near Tortuguita. Um, and most more recently, they found um, a gunshot residue on Tortuguita's body. But there are still very, like open questions about whether or not it was actually him who was shooting at the cops. Um, You know, he like the autopsy report suggests that he was sitting cross-legged with his hands in the air when he was when he was killed. They they when they were killed. They I do it. Why am I doing that? I'm so sorry. Thank you very much. Um the shooting of Tortuguita set off this wave of additional protest. Um vandalism downtown and then and and just the degree of activism and animosity began to rise um like a week or so ago two weeks or so ago uh the gbi the georgia bureau of investigations again not the state not the local folks swore out a warrant to go arrest these 
uh, activists, um, and their warrant described them as domestic violent extremists, as designated by the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security has since disavowed that language when describing the local protests here. But the Department of Homeland Security, and I have to say this, like under the Biden administration, some person at the Department of Homeland Security issued a security bulletin on the 24th that described things in Atlanta as being conducted by alleged domestic violent extremists. The very next day, Chris Carr's agents walked into a court in DeKalb County and swore out warrants. And, and so I am, and I'm not the only one, I, there's been inquiries made at this point by Georgia's two Democratic senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, about what happened at the Department of Homeland Security where this kind of messaging would emanate about these protesters. Like uh, The world is up and is like, there's like the sentiment around these arrests is sharply negative in Atlanta, more or less by all quarters, because they're not accused of an act of violence like and by making these arrests it essentially criminalizes the act of donating to the legal defense of somebody engaged in civil protest um like there's a like that is a a bridge too far even for people who are moderates who are looking at the cop city question like the, whose side do you, do you want to be on Chris Carr's side or do you want to be on the activist side? And Chris side Carr is the attorney general. Like yes, Chris Carr is the attorney general. Mm -hmm. Like you're telling a Democratic voter in the city of Atlanta, pick Chris Carr or the guys in that house. And that's a that puts the city in a very, very peculiar position, because, frankly, like a, a city that votes 75 percent Democrat isn't necessarily going to want to take the side of a Republican governor on this. Yeah. Well, and, and even the judge uh, that they will put in front of um, denounced, in a sense, the charges that uh, were put on them. Is that correct? That is correct. It was very, it was surprisingly skeptical. Uh, it wasn't the local district attorney who was arguing the case, like when the activists were looking for, for a bond. Uh, it was the state's um, prosecutor. It was an assistant uh, attorney general, excuse me, a deputy attorney general. Um, and the judge, the magistrate judge is, is looking at this like, you don't actually have anything here that says that they were engaged in anything that I would think of as illegal. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why they, I mean, normally if it's a domestic violent extremist, you're looking at bail numbers like where you can buy houses and instead they all got $15,000 bonds, which is like an afternoon's work for the folks who raise money. Um, there was no shortage of money raised after this. Like I, the city has a history of activism that will resist this. Yeah, yeah. Going back to Martin Luther King or, or probably even before that. Very much so. Yeah. That bail fund predates Cop City. That's the most, that's the craziest thing. That bail fund was established in 2016 around like the early protests, uh, you know, around the, the Brown protests in the early stages of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, before cop city was a twinkling in anyone's eye um the the idea that it's now become some sort of vehicle for supporting terrorists is a tremendous surprise to all of the very mainstream local supporters who have donated money to that fund in the past yeah so but still um from what i read there is a total currently of uh, 42 activists that are facing state domestic terror charges three others who are facing hefty felony intimidation charges for distributing flyers that named the police officer connected to the killing of tortugita um what's going on here and and what do you think uh where, where is it going 
So those that last bit with the flyers is super interesting because I can't imagine that that doesn't get thrown out of court. And I also can't imagine that the prosecutor and the police officers who brought that case are unaware of that. The, uh, the people who are distributing... Fl- so let me start with this. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation did not want to release the identities either of the police officer who was shot or the police officers who reportedly returned to fire. Um, and that's unusual. Normally we'll see those names. Uh, but the GBI says that police officers have been threatened personally, and so they're withholding that information. A, a, an autopsy report released the names of the police officers, uh, like and they were listing them in terms of the, these the guns of these officers were used to make, do this shooting. Um, activists printed flyers that had those names on it. And like on the basis of that alone, bearing in mind that any journalist who published those names would go unpunished, on the basis of those the, that flyer alone, police officers charged them with an act of intimidation. It's absurd. But that absurdity, to some degree, is the point. Chris Carr, attorney general, almost certainly is going to run for governor in 2026. And he wants to be able to distinguish himself from other very conservative Georgia politicians by saying, look at what I did to these Antifa guys in Atlanta. Look at how strongly I stood up against left-wing terrorism. Um, There's a political element to this that's local to Atlanta, to Georgia in this regard. Um, And it's distorting justice. Uh, I think I could say that. Well, so uh, as you were saying, there's a local um, side to that. I'm thinking there's a national side for that because, um, you know, the notion of uh, charging people for doing really just basically regular um, protest, which is our right in this country, um, is... To me, it looks like part of the extreme right in this country, um, their efforts to um, to to make everything more more extreme and to um, basically to extinguish any kind of uh, activism that is on the left. And, and I mean, they are succeeding in many places, right? There are 12 uh, states where uh, women or people, I suppose we say nowadays, cannot um, um, have abortion. There are all these states where uh, um, books and ba- are banned and so on and so forth. I, I think all of this would have been unthinkable just five years ago, but, you know, this extremization of things uh, just keeps going, and it, I, I think it's very dangerous for me, too, you know, for people here in Wisconsin or anywhere else in this country. I agree with you. Uh, broadly, I agree with you. There's, It's hard to dis- disambiguate this from what's happening in Florida, um, what's happened in Texas, uh, what's, what's happened in other states with Republican uh, legislative majorities. There's this sense of fear on the right that but for these efforts, conservatives will be displaced from government from top to bottom, simply on a matter of demography. And in Georgia, in particular, which is on the knife's edge, and ter- like it's, it is very much a swing state. Depending on how activists turn out and who the candidates are, like we can elect Democrats here. Finally, there is a sense that the protests of 2020, that the sight of black people in the street in 2020, and the and the political galvanization that followed that delivered 
Georgia to Biden. And so on some on some level, like the Republican political establishment has decided that they need to constrain that potential in the future, that they need to make it much more difficult to put thousands of black people in the street in an act of protest in a way that might swing this state's political futures. Um, and so it's not just let's criminalize Let's arrest these protest leaders. Let's arrest these activists and organizers. It's let's make it. I, they didn't actually do this, but let's make it legal to run somebody over in a car if they're protesting in the street. Let's uh, change the laws around what is or is not an act of domestic terrorism. Um, the you know. This is yeah. I think this is a follow. I think this is a continuation of that. Um, you know, and it's fear. It's it's it is political fear that they're gonna lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so calling people again who are engaging in just protest, um, domestic extremists, while also people like Nikki Haley and of course Trump. Um, um, say that this marine killing a a young black man is actually that that he was protecting the people in in that uh, subway car. It's um, yeah, I don't know. That do frustrates me more than almost anything, and I'll tell you why. When uh, protesters were being arrested here around the Tortuguita death, you know, people raised money and suddenly the attorney general shows up to arrest the people who are raising money yeah. and using that money. When the fella in New York was arrested, conservatives around the country gave him a million dollars more in his bail fund and legal defense fund. Right now, Donald Trump, is accused of some very serious crimes. And his first reaction within 35 minutes of disclosing that he was being charged was raising money. He's been raising money in his legal defense this whole time. And there isn't one meaningful question about whether or not what he is doing is legal. Like, it is immoral and improper, but it is not illegal for him to fundraise off of his own criminality. Um, yeah. And this double standard is just shocking to me that we we endure it. Yeah, and again, it's normalizing, um, it's normalizing the extreme right agenda, um, which I think is very, very dangerous and, and uh, will affect, well, it is affecting already all of us and, and will probably go farther, which um, is very concerning. But so let's, let's go to another point that is somewhat relevant. Um, you already mentioned it, but let's put it as a question. The mayor is a Democrat. At least 12 of the city's 15 council members are uh, Democrats. Eight of those Democrats voted to pass the uh, ordinance uh, that um, is going to make Cop City happen. Um, you also noted that they all are black, or most of them are black. Um, what What's the explanation? So there's some, it's on some very basic level, the city council if they decided to vote this down today, if they had decided, oh, you know, on Monday, and by the way, that was a 16-hour slog through that thing. Like, I got there at a 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I did not leave until 6 o'clock the next morning as we were yeah. listening to testimony and, and waiting for this to get Yeah, through. and you know, I just want to quickly interject that we had hearings like that, too, during the Scott Walker years when one that I participated in that lasted forever was about the mine that they wanted to open and that we were able to um, stop from opening, but um, they don't listen, right? Yeah. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people testify and they don't listen. 
So in the case of Atlanta, on some level, like, and I'm, I'm trying to look at this from the perspective of the city council people who are voting yes for this. There isn't a good plan B right now that whatever else is going on, um, if they said, no, we're not doing it, we're done to heck with this today, they'd be start like the process of trying to figure out where to site a new training facility began in 2017. It came to a head into an actual vote in 2021. Like they'd be starting over from scratch. And so there are people who are supportive of this idea. They're not as vocal. And in the city council's view, they believe that the people who are either indifferent or supportive of the construction of a new training facility outnumber the, 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 the people who are stridently opposed to it. They think that they're like when they get into the neighborhoods and they talk to regular voters, that they're not getting the kind of pushback that would threaten their political futures, that they're not going to lose their seats for voting in this direction, but they could gain something if they do. And that's and I don't mean that in some corrupt sense of the word. I mean, simply like we have a training facility now. Um, their view is that the people who are showing up were on the political fringe on the left, that uh, Democratic, and I'm sitting there and I, I mean, I could see who's in the audience. Like a third of the folks in the audience were Democratic Socialists of America, Party for Socialism and Liberation, um, the uh, um, straight up anarchists I've known for a long time because I know anarchists in Atlanta. But every other, but I knew like half the people in that room and they weren't fringy. Like they were activists, Democratic Party activists, I might add. The people who knock on doors and raise money and phone bank. And like, I think there may be a fundamental political miscalculation here that I'm not going to be able to really look at for another year. But um, they're guessing that they've got the support. And I'm beginning to wonder. Well, and you make a point in one of your articles that, again, I want to put it in a larger context that these are the people who go and knock on doors for for democratic candidates. And if they are disappointed with these candidates or currently, you know, with these uh, city council members, and no doubt they are, and maybe even disgusted, they will not be supporting their um, um, campaigns in the future, and uh, Georgia might fall to totally Republican hands, and that will affect everything that happens in this country. Right. I, you know, I, a, a good friend of mine here, every every Monday morning tweets, there are no slow news days in Georgia. <laughs> and ev- and he's right every single time. Um, the uh, Donald Trump's going to be here. He's going to his first stop after indictment is Columbus, Georgia. He's doing the Georgia Republican Convention. This I like Georgia is a swing state. There aren't a lot of swing states. And if Georgia turns back into a red state in a political race in 2024, that might be the margin. Like there are ramifications to these very granular, very local things that ripple out and could affect the rest of the world, Um, which is why I think we get all of the piling in attention that we do it's why i'm never going to be out of a job um there's always something going on yeah well and um you mentioned senators john ossoff and Raphael warnock which i think again um a lot of people throughout the country were very happy to see them elected, but they also have been mostly silent about this whole situation. What, what What's their role here, and uh, how have they uh, responded? So, all right, in their defense, um, neither John Ossoff nor Raphael Warnock want to be regularly antagonizing local political officials because mm-hmm. it feels like you're bigfooting in on 
sorts of things that should be decided at a local level. Like, I get it. And I say this as a, as a reformed, like, ele- elected person. Like, if, you know, my, re- my gut level reaction to somebody who doesn't live in my neighborhood telling us how to vote is, well, where the heck are you? Um, yeah. The, uh, I say that with all kinds of love in my heart for both Raphael Warnock and, and um, uh, John Ossoff. Uh, they're, they're both amazing leaders. Um, but I think they've been hesitant to try to tell the mayor what to do because they don't want to be in that position and they don't want to burn a bridge. Like, because that mayor is going to be expected to turn votes out for them in four and six years. Um, but I think something shifted with the rest of those activists a few days ago because it looks so egregious and because of the involvement somehow of the Department of Homeland Security. Like, I think a line was crossed there. The minute the Department of Homeland Security's posture on this became a question, it became a federal issue. And if it's a federal issue, you should expect your congressman and you should expect your senators to be saying something. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one thing that the activists have been saying that $90 million, that's a lot of money. Um, what about putting, you know, a fraction of this money into uh, mental health training and into um, teaching cops how to um, disengage rather than kill and so on and so forth. Uh, is, there, is there any money going into um, things like that in Atlanta? So there is money that's going into things like that into, in Atlanta. Um, and some programs that I think are actually very, that should be looked at as a national model like the pre-arrest diversion initiative in Atlanta. Um, At the last moment in the city council meeting, the city council amended their ordinance on the cop city thing to mandate that there be training like you just described. And that mandate had been missing from the discussions earlier. Uh, I think we've got to dig a little bit to see exactly what that's going to look like. Um, Because while there was a mandate for that training, there wasn't a dollar figure attached to Mm, it. Of course. Um, You know, and uh, until you can tell me exactly what kind of resources are going to go into it, you know, and what you're willing to give up to get it. Like, uh, I question question how real it is. Yeah. So... um... The police in the United States, generally speaking, has been militarizing um, in in many ways in the training and in the uh, um, in the stuff that they have, right? In the kind of um, firearms, in in having tanks and personnel carriers and so on and so forth, and that is one of the big fears of activists is that this is what they will be training in, that this is why they have a city there. Now, of course, if there's a case of uh, domestic abuse, for example, right, the guy is holding his wife and children hostages, we do want them to be able to get into this house and um, rescue the hostages. But the thought of this might happen to you or me, you know, it, it, it is scary. I, I have to say, there's an element of this that's local around that training. You're right. Like there has been an increasing militarization. Some of that's equipment. Like, for example, like they've Atlanta's got a sonic cannon that they can use to disperse protesters, which is absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, some of this is posture and training. Some of this is the, the, the sort of adversarial relationship that bad training can engender toward the public. Now, in Atlanta's defense, in general, they have a much more progressive view of this training than most municipalities. And I say that as somebody who's been looking very closely at that issue. Like, on like the Atlanta does have de-escalation training as part of its uh, its you know thing. For the folks who have been like most stridently opposed to the construction of Cop City, their posture is there is no amount of training that can reduce the harm that policing does 
because policing is an inherently harmful institution. That is their posture. And I'm not going to take issue with that in the terms of a sort of philosophical thing, except to say I disagree with that. Like, I'm not an abolitionist on police. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, um, we live in a state where you don't need a permit to carry a gun as a concealed weapon. Mm -hmm. One out of every 10 cars that are parked on a street in Atlanta has a gun in it, which is why we have this massive problem with, uh, like, mass car break-ins as folks are looking for guns. Um, there's... Like, we are awash in firearms here. And so the police are asked to respond regularly where they don't know whether or not the person they're responding to is armed or not. And uh, with a presumption that basically everybody's got a gun. And that the militarization of police is a local reaction to a very national problem around guns. Like, as long as it's as easy as it is right now for people in this state and in this country to get their hands on a lethal weapon, you're going to end up with police departments that are trained to respond lethally. And that just, that's why you end up with 1,200 people a year being killed by a cop. One out of every 12 people in the United States who dies at the hands of a firearm is on the wrong side of a police weapon. Yeah. You know, and, and we don't fix that until we fix the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I accept this point, uh, but I want to say, um, so you say that Atlanta does have a de-escalation program, and yet uh, Richard Brooks, for example, yeah. um, in 2020 was um, shot dead for sleeping in his car by a cop. So, you know... Yeah doesn't seem to work all that well it's it is a challenge to that it's a challenge to that idea i will i will concede that yeah well we have about one minute and um i have more questions but i would like to just ask you to um talk about whatever you think is important for our listeners to hear that we haven't discussed yet so uh my normal reporting right now these days has been about jail overcrowding and uh, a gang trial around a young thug. That's how that's how people know me here. Um, I will say I am anticipating uh, madness in the streets in Atlanta in August when Fonnie Willis, local prosecutor here, decides whether or not she's going to indict Trump on local charges of mm. election interference from the 2020 thing. Yeah, and it's interesting that we're talking about how protest is criminalized because for all of the left-wing protests that we're talking about, I'm expecting far-right protests in the street here. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see whether or not the attorney general's office and the governor's office and the city approach those protesters the real related, domestic... relative to how we've been seeing this. Yeah, the real the real domestic terrorists. Well, George Chidis, columnist for Decaturish.com, former staff writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, former city councilman for the city of Pine Lake, and also contributes commentary to Fox 5 Atlanta. Too bad I don't have time to ask you about that. But thank you, uh, George, for joining us today. And thanks to Summer and Jade and Patty. Again, thanks to those of you who pledged and donated last week. I really, really appreciate it. I'm STD Noor. Bye-bye.